Welcome. This is the Woodbury Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We're glad that you tuned in, and if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find out all the information at woodburychurch.org. Or we'll see you some Sunday, Sundays at 10 a.m. Looking forward to it. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, Years ago, I was on a road trip, and uh, we were in the middle of Nebraska, so pretty exciting part of the road trip. And uh, I needed gas, pulled into a gas station. And between the time that I saw the price on the sign, the marquee outside, and I had gone in to actually fill up, the price had changed. I don't know if you've ever had that happen. It's like lightning fast. So I see that it's whatever price a gallon. You know, this is a long enough time ago that was probably less expensive than it is now. And then I didn't pay attention at the pump. You know, I just pumped my gas. And then when I went inside to pay, they were like, it'll be this much. And I'm like confused. I thought it was this much. And no big deal. You know, it's like pennies more a gallon. No big deal. You know, 50 cents more for your whole whatever to fill up. Uh, so not a, not a big deal. But there was another driver that this had happened to as well. They pulled in at the same time. And for this person, it was a very big deal. We didn't have the terminology. We didn't have the technical terminology at the time. But we would now call them uh, a, a Karen. And they were, I'm so sorry if you're named Karen or your middle name's Karen or your grandma's name's Karen. I'm so sorry. It's just the way it is. You know, my dad's name is John and he's never liked how they use that sometimes too. So it's just the way it goes. She was disgusted. She was so upset. And, and it's kind of one of those things where, you know, you figure you're in a crowd of people. There's enough people in here. You should just kind of rein it in, even if you're unhappy with the situation. But she was yelling. She was going to call the Better Business Bureau that they were ripping her off and all this crazy stuff. And, you know, of course, this poor clerk at the counter can't do anything. They have zero control. And that's typically how the situation goes. The person's yelling at this poor person that cannot do anything. They're just trying to keep their cool, keep their job. And so finally, this, uh, this lady leaves the gas station and she does the most bizarre thing that I've ever seen in a situation like this. Rather than, you know, just yelling and walking out and trying to slam, you know, the automatic door, she gets to the door and she turns around into the clerk. She says this phrase, I, this sentence, I've never heard anything like this before. She says, I have a cold and I hope you get it. And I was, it's such a weird thing. It was like an old school curse. You know what I mean? May your crops fail and your bed be full of lice or something like that. It was just such a weird interaction. And now this was way pre-COVID, you know, so it wasn't anything like that. But it was just, you know, it was a curse. Not the, the naughty words, get a movie rated PG-13 kind of cursing. But it was like a medieval curse, you know? Like, and this actually, this kind of cursing is, is got a long history. Um, I didn't bring this verse up, but I, in, in the process of preparing the sermon this week, I, I found a couple of curses in the Bible. You can, if you decide this is not for you, you can open your Bible to Psalm 109 and read Psalm 109. Don't do that. It's not really part of the sermon. I see some of you going for it, and I appreciate the enthusiasm, but I'm just telling you this. Psalm 109, David, this is David, a man after God's own heart, and he's writing in this, this song, and he writes that about his enemies, and he says, I hope your children are fatherless and that your wife becomes a widow. And you're like, oh, David, you are having a bad day. That is a curse. That is a curse. I don't think I've ever actually witnessed an actual curse on one's enemy. 
Now, if Jesus was known for one teaching, one thing, one, one truth, it was this, right? I don't know that we would need a quiz or a multiple choice. I think most of us would at some point in the conversation, if we were answering that, we would shout out, well, Jesus was known for teaching this, to love one's enemies. That was kind of his big thing. Like he taught a lot of things, certainly. There was a lot in his teaching, a lot to unpack and a lot to understand. But if you were going to try to kind of sum up what was different about this rabbi or what was different about Jesus' teaching versus any other religion or any other rabbi, you might say, well, one of the things he taught that was really unique and really distinct was to love your enemies. It's, it's one of the most well-known of Jesus' teachings. And it's also one of the most or the least understood of Jesus' teachings. Now, I, I think sometimes, even as I bring that up today, some people are going to be like, well, I've heard that one before, so I'm going to tune out and do Facebook or play a game on my phone or whatever. By the way, turn your phones off. But I think that if you pay a little bit of attention to what's going on, I think you'll understand that what Jesus is saying is, is we may be familiar with it, but we do not understand it, and we certainly do not live it. When someone curses us, I don't know that you've ever had somebody walk out of a gas station and say, I hope you get my cold. But you've certainly had someone yell at you, be upset with you, be frustrated with you, totally, and you're totally innocent. You didn't do anything. And they've been mean to you. They've, it could be a coworker. It could be a relative. They've just done something terrible to you. When someone does that to you, you have two options. You have two options. The first option you have is to somehow get back at them. That's the first option. Kind of like as if you were Muhammad Ali in a boxing match. Uh, they hurt you. They verbally hit you, they undermined you, they did something to you, so you do something back to them, but just a little bit harder, just a little bit more. And the problem with that, of course, is that it always escalates. They curse you, you curse them, and we think getting back will solve the problem, but it just, it just raises the stakes. It just always escalates until somebody gets knocked out. There's a label for this type of, of vicious cycle, and it's called the myth of, re, uh, of redemptive violence. And it's every action hero movie, because what happens in an action hero movie is the bad guy does something bad, and so the good guy has to do something bad to the bad guy. And it just gets more and more violent. And now some of the action movies today, it's just like two superheroes knocking over entire cities because they think that somehow this is going to solve the problem. And at the end of all those movies, the bad guy has to die or there has to be a sequel because that's the myth of redemptive violence is that we can solve the problem through violence. And that's, that's one of our options. That's one of our options. We get back because it feels better. We hope it makes the problem go away and it never gets any better. It doesn't get better. The other solution we have is we can give in or give up. You can go to the next slide if you want. You can give up and just wave the white flag and they hurt me and you just roll over and then the bad guy just wins through bad behavior. And a lot of us do this. We have a class, did a class this morning uh, on the topic of Minnesota nice and that's what some of us do. If things get a little too heated, we're just like, okay, I'm out. And we kind of uh, internally wave the white flag. We're just like, I don't want to deal with this person. They're getting way too upset. It's not, it's, I, can't, I can't deal with it. I think I've mentioned this story before, but it's so good. I'm going to say it again. At our mission trip garage sale that we do in the spring, we gather a bunch of stuff that you guys have sitting around your garage and we sell it. We raise money to go on this mission trip to Mexico. Well, this year uh, was the first year that Presley got to be a part of that. And uh, we let Presley take money for one of the afternoons. And there were a couple ladies that came in that Presley was not prepared for. 
because they knew how to negotiate and Presley's only move was wave the white flag. So they come in and they're like, hey, this thing says it's a dollar, but I'd like to give you 25 cents in Presley. You know, and I would do this too. I'm actually just picking on him, but it's exactly what I would do, which is why nobody lets me run the garage sale. I'd be like, sure, take it, whatever you want. And so Presley's like, yeah, you can have it for 25 cents. And then what ended up happening is this lady realized, ooh, blood in the water. This kid's weak. And it started to just compile and pretty soon he's just like you know this lady's got this pile of stuff and she's given us you know like 12 cents and it just is like because they realize oh he's given up I think we can go for the jugular we can really get more and sometimes in the situations that we're in and the conflicts and the hurts and the troubles and the cursings that we're in the people that are hurting us when we wave the white flag it doesn't really solve the problem we hope it goes away but really we just internalize something and try to suppress it but the bad guy wins and nothing ever really gets any better nothing gets any better. And I think a lot of us, it solves nothing, and a lot of us combine these two reactions, meaning we're passive on the outside, but internally we're fuming. And we're fantasizing about exactly the thing we would say to really get them. Are we ever going to say that? No. In fact, in our recounting of the situation when we're at home with safe people, we're, we're talking about a coworker who said something mean or rude. And then sometimes in our retelling of the story, we say, well, then I told them X, Y, Z. And your spouse would be like, did you really say that? And you're like, no, but that's what I thought about 40 minutes later when I had some time to cool down. But we combine these two reactions and it really only makes things worse for us and, and it solves nothing. To get back is wrong, but it feels like the only way we can pursue justice to give up feels wrong because injustice wins and then to suppress it only hurts us. So what are we supposed to do in these situations? Now, you're smart, you're a smart crowd, you're like, well, I saw the love your enemies thing, so I think that's probably where we're going, Patrick, and you'd be right. But how do we get there in any meaningful way? How do we really get to that place where that is our reaction? That's our response. My, uh, my dad was 19 years old, 19, 20 years old. He lived in New York City, and he happened to be met in Manhattan uh, at the time. And at, at this point in, uh, in New York's history, this was like New York, the, the, the crime stats were just skyrocketing, right? This is when things were bad. I mean, they made the movie Goodfellas, right, like right about events that were occurring at this time. So it's, you know, it's a lot, of, a lot of crime, a lot of robbery, mugging, all that stuff. So my dad has told me the story, and I remember it and asked him for details this week, but he's walking through Manhattan. These two guys came up, kind of threatened him, and they're like, give us all your money, right? Classic, classic mugging situation. Now, if this is, you know, my dad, and you've got these two guys threatening, if this is my dad in a action hero movie, my dad would just very calmly, you know, like flip the toothpick out of his mouth, he'd squint his eyes, he'd say something like, do you feel lunky, punk, or something like that, dirty hairy style, and then he would take the two guys down, right? If that, was a, if that was a movie, he would get back, you threaten me, I'll take you down, and then the crowd would be like, yay, the bad guys got what was coming to them. That's not my dad. If this were most of us in a situation like that, bad guys come up to us, give us all your money, we would immediately wave the white flag, right? We would say, yeah, sure, I've only got a couple bucks, but no problem, here you go, this is, you know, and the bad guys would get away with it and life would go on and that's what most of us would do. Now my father, being the international man of mystery that he is, did neither of those things. And you're thinking, well, what did he do? What, what other third option was there other than to fight or surrender? Well, my dad tells this story, and I think he tells it because it kind of looks 
reflects well on him. But he tells the story that these two guys came up and they said, give us all your money. And he said, no. He just said no. He didn't threaten. He didn't pull out a gun. He didn't pull out a knife. He didn't wave a white flag. He just said no. Now, the two guys, according to my dad's telling the story, I wasn't there with witnesses, but according to my dad, the two guys were so startled by the noncompliance that they were just like, I don't know what to do, and they left. And so my dad survived a mugging just by not going along with what they were doing. He didn't get back. He didn't give in. He just said no. Now, I realize, you know, that's, that's my dad, and he is an international man of mystery, and I don't know that most of us could really do that, but how would we in those situations, and it's not talking about getting mugged, because most of us aren't going to experience that, I hope, but what about just the normal, everyday situations? Now, remember, we're in a series called Greatest Hits, and we're calling it that because we're working through a passage of Scripture of Jesus' teaching, just 29 verses, but it's Jesus' teaching that you would have heard when Jesus sat down with big crowds. This is probably what you would have heard. And so last week, we talked about who is really blessed and who is really cursed. And this week, we're going to talk about the, the most well-known uh, thing, the most well-known command that Jesus said. So I would just want you to know this. Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people whose lives have been difficult. They're looking for truth. They're looking for something real. They followed this random guy way out in the desert, and he's teaching them. Their, their lives have not gone according to plan. They're, it hasn't been the way that they envisioned it. They're, they're people who live in an occupied country. They've got religious oppression. They've got financial oppression. And, and people are thinking, how do I get out from under this burden? How do I live the life that I know God has created me to live? What, how do I do? And these are, how, how do I live as a, as a blessed person in an environment like this? And to that context, Jesus speaks these words. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. Luke 6, 27. But to you who are listening, and I love that. I love that because right there, whether you realize it or not, he kind of divides the room. Because there are people in this room and in the crowd that Jesus was addressing that were not listening. Their hearts weren't tuned to real truth. They were looking for a way to justify what they wanted to do. They were looking for what they wanted to hear. And Jesus said, I am interested in people who are listening, who have ears to hear. And that's true. I was praying this morning that God's spirit would blow through this room and, and stoke fires of people who really want to know him, to live like him, to be lights in their communities and their workplaces and their families like him. But I know, and here's the hard truth, church, I know that that's not everybody here right now. There are some people here right now that are just here. And it doesn't have to be that way, but that's the way it is. There are some people who are just here. And what Jesus wants is people who are listening. Do you, you hear what I'm saying? Do you hear what I'm teaching? He says, do you have ears to hear? So he says that, and I love the fact that he starts with that. But you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. You've heard that too. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. 
Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do unto others, or do to others as you would have them do to you. And then he goes on to say, listen, if you're just loving those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. That's like bottom rung of the ladder. That's easy to do. If you just do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? And the word credit actually is the same word as the word grace. Kind of interesting. Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to those expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, he says, this is verse 35, do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then, he says, your reward will be great. And you will be children. This is so fascinating. Then, you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. You will be like God when you live like this. That's wild. Now, the whole passage there is really just an explanation of that first line, love your enemies. It's just Jesus kind of, this is what it looks like, folks, love your enemies. Now, we see, a, we see a phrase like that. Maybe we think in our own lives and we're, okay, Patrick, I want to be a listener. I, wanna, I, want, I want my heart tuned to what God wants me to do. I want to do the right thing. Love your enemies. And immediately our little internal defense attorney goes to work and starts thinking like, okay, well, I don't really have any enemies. Sure, I've got some people I really dislike and that I hope their crops fail and that they get a cold that I've been having and I might slash their tires if nobody were looking. But I don't really have any enemies. I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't define it that way. Yeah, that's true. We don't really use that terminology to talk about people we don't like. We don't call them enemies. And so it's easy for us to say, well, this doesn't really apply to me because I don't really have any enemies. I just have some people I intensely dislike and I hope I never see them again. Well, <laughs> that well, could be, right? The other thing that we do that our little internal defense attorney does is, well, what does it mean to love them anyway? I mean, really, what does it mean to love? I'm not actually slashing their tires. I'm not actually cursing them. So I'm good, right? I'm good. I'm not actively hating them, so I'm fine. And the truth is, if we keep Jesus' commands abstract enough, then we don't really have to worry about it. And maybe you're even thinking, well, sure, yeah, I could pray for my enemies. God, please uh, drop an upright piano on their toes, but you're not really thinking like to their benefit and their well-being and their goodness. So if we keep these commandments kind of abstract and distant, we're safe. Jesus, I think, knows what we're thinking, and he inconveniently defines this command for us. And it's frustrating because it really pins us to the ground and makes us wrestle with what he's asking us to do here. One of the things he says in particular is so challenging that I think people have really struggled with it. And it's this phrase, it's this phrase to turn the other cheek. And I think people are good with the abstract idea of like, yes, love your enemies. That's wonderful. But then when he actually starts to define it, mm, I don't, mm, objection, your honor. I don't think that means what I want it to mean. And our objections to this idea, how Jesus defines love your enemies are posed as rhetorical questions. These are the kind of rhetorical questions that I hear with this topic. Are we just supposed to be a doormat and let people walk all over us? Are we not supposed to defend ourselves and our families? Are we not supposed to protect the innocent? Are we just supposed to let terrorists and bad guys run the world? 
And you'll notice that it scales up real quickly from, hey, love your enemies, turn the other cheek. And then all of a sudden we're talking about like national defense and nuclear warfare. And you're like, whoa, wait, we don't have to worry about those big things just yet. Let's just think about loving your enemies and turning the other cheek in our own situation, in our own environment. Hang on. And we get confused and distracted and off topic really quickly. And I, and I think we do in an, in an attempt to avoid kind of a simple truth that Jesus is teaching. So, so let me just offer uh, four, uh, hopefully quick, relatively quick, um, ways to, to contain the objections that may, you may be thinking, may be rising up in you right now. Number one, don't get lost in the hypotheticals. Bible college is a wonderful place to debate things that will never matter in the real world. And this is one of the things that gets debated in Bible college. I recall very distinctly sitting in dorm rooms talking about stuff like this. Um, we'd sit around debating, and it would always be like, well, one guy said to, you know, you're supposed to love your enemies, you're supposed to turn the other cheek, that means that we have to be nonviolent and pacifist. And then you'd always have the other guy, and he'd be like, okay, let me pose you a scenario. Let's say a gunman breaks into your grandma's house, and he's got a gun to your head, and you're just, and you've got a gun there on the table. You're just going to let the gunman shoot him? And then the other person, the pacifist, is like, well, uh, where did I get the gun? Doesn't matter where you got the gun. Okay. Uh, well, am I a good shot? Let's say you're a bad shot. Well, I'll throw the gun at him or I'll shoot him in the knee. And it just gets so ridiculous so quickly. We, Jesus was talking about something real and practical. And all of a sudden, we're talking about these wild scenarios that hopefully are never going to happen. We're talking about silly hypotheticals and, and safely away from anything practical. So don't get lost in hypothetical situations. Secondly, don't excuse yourself similarly because of the extremes. Have you ever heard a Minnesotan say, well, hey, Sure, winters are cold, but man, at least we don't have to deal with hurricanes and earthquakes and alligators. Have you ever heard that? Right? We even get a little proud of that. I got a sticker I can show you up there. Yeah, you can put this sticker on your water bottle or your car. At least, at least we don't have to deal with that. <clears throat> well, actually, Minnesota has all those things. Now some of you are like, well, fake news. You're just making that up. Nope. Just, just spend the rest of the sermon Googling that if you want to get distracted. All those things. There was an epicenter of an earthquake in Cottage Grove, which I guess tells you that Jesus lives would be better. I don't know. But they're extremely rare. It's extremely rare. I get that. But it would be so silly for someone to be like, well, I'm not going to go swimming at Carver Lake because I heard there were alligators in Minnesota. Well, nah, I mean, maybe one because some, you know, goofy dummy let out a pet that they brought up from Florida. I mean, sure, they, it rarely can happen. But whatever Jesus means by turn the other cheek, he's talking about the vast majority of our interactions. He's not talking about the wild extremes that could happen. And if we are not careful, we reword this commandment to say, I'll turn the other cheek unless I can come up with a really good reason not to. And you know what happens with humans? We're really good at coming up with justifications. And so we've just scooted around that command because I can think of a good reason not to love my enemy. Thirdly, and this is important, and I want to word this really carefully, but don't confuse assault with insult. This is, I have to be really careful here because you're like, well, what Jesus talked about could really put somebody vulnerable in a dangerous and difficult position. I'm no martial arts expert. <clears throat> I've never taken a karate class in my life. The closest I've ever gotten is watching it in a movie. I have no idea. But 
I would imagine if you went to your sensei and said, I would like to learn how to take an opponent to the mat, they would not say, if you really want to bring somebody down, what you want to do is go for a slap on the cheek. They wouldn't say that. Why? Because that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about wrestling someone to the ground. We're talking about an environment. By the way, in the first century, a slap was still something you weren't supposed to do, but it was a lot more common. It was a lot more than it is here. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, maybe you are gratefully tuned out of these things, but there was a slap that happened very publicly in March of last year, and people are still talking about it. I mean, it was a big deal. But in Jesus' environment, a slap was a way for someone to act like they were better than you, more important than you, and to demean you. But he, Jesus, listen, Jesus' heart for victims and the oppressed and the marginalized, Jesus isn't telling those people to just put yourself in a dangerous, violent situation. I don't, in fact, this is, I, I think Jesus has something to say about assault, but I don't think he's talking about it here He's commanding, he's not commanding the powerless just to continue to expose themselves to abuse. By the way, a fun little side note if you want to dig into it. In the book of John, Jesus is actually slapped. It actually happened to him. And do you know what he didn't do? He didn't say, oh, you missed a spot. <laughs> he, he protested. He challenged. Jesus is trying to get us to understand how do we react to insult and to people hurting us and demeaning us. But he's not saying, hey, you're a victim. You're a marginalized person. You need to continue to expose yourself to that. I think that would be a dangerous takeaway for us to draw from this passage. In, in, uh, and the fourth one is don't get distracted by political policy positions. And this is a big one because people rightly wonder, and these are important questions to ask about war and policing and national defense. Is it okay to enlist in the military? And should a Christian impose the death penalty? And people have very strong opinions about those things. But the opinions we form about those kinds of things, we need to be careful about allowing those opinions to eliminate what we believe about these normal, everyday human interactions. Because some people will say, well, I think it's okay for a Christian to impose the death penalty, and therefore I don't have to turn the other cheek. And you just got to be very careful. So don't get distracted by those big things. And there's a danger that these debates become more about, is this command practical rather than is it biblical? And Martin Luther King Jr. wrote about this or, or really preached about it, and then it was, uh, it was saved in an essay form. But he was like, of course Jesus' commands aren't practical. Practicality is not the point of Jesus' teaching. And when we just decide that it needs to be practical and we eliminate what he actually said, we're just missing the point. It's not about practicality. So I'm going to guess that many of you right now are in the middle, in the depths, in the trenches of a love your enemies situation. You may not have defined it that way, but you're right in the middle. Maybe a family member said something hurtful. And they acted like it was an innocent little comment, but you know, you know what they were intending to say. They were saying it in a way that they could get off the hook if anybody confronted them about it, but you know. Maybe you have a friend or a former friend, and they just stop responding to your texts, and you don't know what happened, and, and it hurt you, and it makes you want to hurt them. Maybe you have a relative, and they're just going from one drama to the next, one dramatic situation to the other, and they're always calling you, and it's hours on the phone, and you've stopped responding to them. You've started screening their phone calls. You've stopped responding to their text. Maybe it's a coworker who gets on your very last nerve. You only have one left, and they get on it every single day. 
Your politeness reservoir is completely depleted. You have no more politeness to give. You don't want to get HR involved, but it might come to that. You're in a situation, and what would it look like to take Jesus seriously in those situations? When he says, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, what would it look like when you just want to get back or you just want to give in and make it, hope it goes away? I think Jesus is saying this, and he said it much more succinctly than we can, but I think it's important for us to understand. He's saying that to love our enemies means this, to be genuinely committed to their well-being without taking into account how they are treating us. I'll tell you what, that is hard. That is hard, but they don't deserve my love. That is true. But they don't deserve my help. That is probably true. But I warned them not to get involved in that situation, and now they're on their own. The bed is made, and now they got to lie in it. That's not the Bible. That may be true. What does it look like to be genuinely committed to their well-being without taking into account how they are treating you? I told you before about our mean neighbors. Um, we had some neighbors that we got along with, and uh, they... <laughs> they they were a little of the, uh, the prepper variety, and they bought some land out in the country somewhere and are waiting out the apocalypse. That's actually true. And so the house was sitting empty. Uh, we got along. I got along with them. All right. It was fun to talk about the apocalypse a little bit with them and be like, ah, oh, what kind of kooky idea are they going to come up with? But anyway, they moved. And so I was praying, God, please, please bring neighbors that we can get along with and get to know and you know, really develop a neighborhood community with. God, would you please bless us with neighbors that are good? And, <laughs> and we got some neighbors. What God, I guess, heard me say was, God, can you make some neighbors that are really challenging to love and what it means to love your neighbors? So these, these neighbors move in, and I'm going to start off on the right foot. So I go get a gift, and I bring it to them, and nobody answers the door. But I know they were home because I was watching out my window to see the car pull in. And I know that's a little bit creepy, but I just didn't want to go over there and nobody be home. So I knock on the door, nothing, 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 nothing. And finally, I'm like, okay, man, leave the gift at the door. And, you know, I check back a couple hours later, just pretending I was walking down the street. The gift's gone. They were home, you know. It's just some cookies. They were, they were home. So I gave them a gift. They returned that gift by coming to our door a few weeks later and telling us to keep our kids off their lawn. <laughs> so like, oh, okay, well, that's, this is a fun interaction. And uh, I thought, well, you know, it's all right. It's all right, God. You know, love your enemies, right? Love your neighbors. And so the next thing I did, it was, I think it was close to Christmas time or maybe a few weeks before Christmas. I, again, they're home. Okay, I'm going to run over there with a little Christmas cookie or something like that and knocked on the door. And this time I was not going to give up until they answered. Knock, 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 knock. Waited, waited, waited. Knock, knock. I know they're there. Some of you are like, yeah, I would hate you as a neighbor. I know. I, I get it. I, I, I recognize that. I knew they were home. And uh, finally, after, I don't know, it just felt like forever. When you're standing on somebody's doorstep and they're not answering it, it just feels like forever. Finally, I hear this, who is it? Not even like an open the door, not just who is it? And I'm like, you know, it's me in my best, I'm just a friendly guy voice. And it gets really high pitched because I'm also a little tense. And I'm like, it's just me, your neighbor. You know, I sound, <laughs> I sound like Mickey Mouse. I'm just dropping off a Christmas tree. And this, I'm not kidding when I say they open the door wide enough that the gift could fit through, and they said, okay, and then closed it. And I'm like, oh my goodness, these people are proving to be a big challenge. Okay. 
What they did after that is they called the police on the boys. Not even Liam, but happened to run through their lawn, called the police. Next thing you know, the police show up. So gift-giving, police calling, right? Love your enemies. Very next uh, interaction that I had with them, well, it wasn't really an interaction. Our neighborhood was getting together. Several families in the neighborhood were getting together to have pizza on the driveway. And we're sitting out there, and I'm like, guys, I'm going to go invite these guys. And they're like, why would you? They had made enemies of the whole neighborhood. And they were like, why would you? And I'd be like, I, did, I should have said, because Jesus says to. But what I said was, I don't know. I'm just going to make it happen. You know, Go over there. Try to invite them uh, over to our pizza party. Next thing I know, the house is for sale, and they've moved. They lived there eight months. And some of you are like, yeah, I would have moved too if you were my neighbor. That's harassment. No wonder they call the police. I totally get that. I'm, I understand. But it was such a weird, like, they made me want to be mean to them. And what Jesus is saying is that you have to figure out how would you treat someone that you like? How would you interact with them? And then you need to keep doing that. You need to keep doing that. You need to keep doing that. Now, some of you would be like, hey, Patrick, maybe to love them would be to leave them alone. And I understand. I, I understand. But I love that this command of Jesus to love your enemies, there's something of a loving defiance in it that you expected me to mistreat you back. You expected surrender, but I, I'm not going to do that. That's not, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to do this third thing. I'm going to do this third way. Uh, Walter Wink wrote a book about the phrase, love your enemies, and I, I like what he said. He says, when you love your enemy, you deprive them of the predictability of your response because they're expecting hate. They're expecting surrender. Now, this is so important for us to understand, but that insult, that, that hurt, that, that pain that they caused you is real. It's real. You don't have to just ignore that. It's real. They meant to hurt you. You can acknowledge that. But what you're doing as a Christian is you are taking out of circulation the insult and you're entering into circulation a blessing. You're taking out revenge and you're re-entering into the situation forgiveness. You're taking out brokenness and you're injecting beauty into this relationship. And it's, it's an amazing thing and it's the only way the world gets any better. In fact, this kind of love is the only kind of love with real redemptive power. It's the only kind of love with real redemptive power. You are never going to solve any of your problems by getting back. And you really won't solve any of your problems by giving in. But if you love your enemies, as Jesus has called us to do, you've, I'm sure you've heard. If you haven't, you've been living under a rock, but you've heard of a gentleman by the name of Daryl Davis. There was a documentary, I think it still may be on Netflix, called, I think it's called... Uh, accidental generosity, something like that. Anyway, um, he's a guy that had this random interaction with a member of the KKK. And he was curious, like, why, why is this guy wired that way? And they developed this sort of connection and eventually became friends. And through the process of these conversations and having him over for lunch and spending time with this guy that was just opposed to his very being, this guy eventually renounced his membership and literally gave his robes to Daryl Davis. Like, I don't know why you would give them to him, but he did. And at this point, this has been 20, 30 years ago, Daryl Davis now has over 100 robes because he realized, whoa, there was power in that way of being. I could be angry or I could just avoid, but there was power in this third way, redemptive power. That's amazing. 
And he gets a lot of hate for this. He gets a lot of people that say, no, you must get back at them. You must hate them. You must seek revenge. And of course, they don't phrase it like that. And he just calmly responds like, hey, how many people have you got to renounce their membership in the KKK? Zero? Okay, well, I'll just keep doing it my way. Because this is the way that seems to work. I just don't think that there's anything more powerful that we have, any more powerful tool at our disposal than that, that, that ability to step over those typical barriers and boundaries and execute a concrete act of generosity and kindness to someone that is attempting to hurt us, emotionally hurt us, to cause us pain, to cause us insult, to curse us. There's nothing more powerful now, you may be thinking, okay, Daryl Davis, that's inspiring, but it's not particularly relatable. I mean, if you're sitting here saying, yeah, my enemy, I'm feuding with my mother-in-law. What's the equivalent there? You know, how do I get her to renounce her robes? What do I do? <laughs> and it's, again, it's easy. It's easy for us to just offer resistance, right? Yeah, it's not practical for me. So but let me just offer you three suggestions as we wrap up. We're almost done this morning. Three suggestions from verses 27 and 28, where he says, to you who are listening, Remember that. I hope that's us. I hope that's you. To you who are listening. I say, love your enemies. Well, how? And then he says, he says, do good to those who hate you. Now, some of you are like, okay, well, that's great. I would love to do good to those that hate me. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but whatever. But I'm not in a situation. They live millions of miles away. They couldn't live millions. They live thousands of miles away. Or they're not, I don't have, they've cut me off. I don't have a relationship with them. I don't have a way to do good. And I think Jesus is ready for that objection. So he says, well, okay, well, bless them. Because you know what the next best thing is, is if you can't actually get back at that person, you talk bad about them. You get in a situation where you're like, well, they, you know, them, I can't believe them. And if it's a coworker, you get with the other coworkers. And Jesus says, don't do that. What would it be to speak blessings over that person? Not cursings, not gossip. What would it be to speak blessings about them and toward them? Well, I'm not in a situation where anybody knows what's going on. I don't really have anybody to talk to, and I'm not talking bad about them. Well, then he offers one more thing you can do. Pray for them. Put that at the top of your prayer list. Pray for them. If you don't have any other options, if you can't physically be good to them, if you don't have a way to speak blessing over them and toward them, well, then pray for them. Do concrete acts of love or speak well of them. Or finally, just pray for them. And that's what it is to love our enemies. And I'll tell you what. Those things that Jesus suggested, they're good for enemies, but they're also good for friends too, right? Do good, bless, pray. But if you can think about a person you love and you can say, now I'm going to figure out how I can treat that enemy the same way, man, that's so powerful. Redemptive power in this loving your enemies. So good, so good. You can see why people traveled for miles to hear Jesus speak because he was saying something so different than everybody else. It's hard, but it's so different. We're going to close our time together with a song. I'm going to invite the praise team to come back on up, and we're going to sing a song that talks about this idea of peace. Uh, we sang a song about loving one another, and we've got to figure out how to love our enemies as well. But I want us to sing about what our lives might look like if we were pursuing peace, if we were seeking uh, redemptive love in the lives of the people that we may struggle with. So let's stand together as we sing this song.